Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Max Jacobs. I'm a second year doctoral student in education at Rutgers University. Today, I'm interviewing Jack Schneider and Ethan Hunt, authors of the book Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning, But Don't Have to. To get us started, Jack and Ethan, can you both introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, I am Jack Schneider. I am the Dwight W. Allen Distinguished Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I'm Ethan Hutt. I'm a Gary Stuck Fellow in Education, and uh, I'm an Associate Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you very much. Uh, To get us started, in the back of the book, you both note that this book began in a dingy basement in your graduate school of education. Can you both just reflect on which ideas or questions were most influential in those conversations that led to this book? Sure. I mean, shout out to our dingy basement in uh, Coverly at Stanford. Um, <laughs> I think, I, you know, I think Jack and I have always um, just been really interested, like as historians of education, we're interested in engaging with people who are involved in practice, teachers, administrators, um, education policy folks, I think we've always been drawn to questions about um, where the things that now are taken for granted in schools came from. So anybody who's ever been in a school has experienced a grade, a standardized test, and so many students, you know, just think that they're synonymous with schooling. And so we always were sort of would think about and marvel about like, gee, how did this this thing that's so a part of the experience and conversations about schooling, like where did they come from? Um, and if you're interested in school reform like we are, then why is it that people, it seems like in the historical record, have been complaining about this thing forever and yet here it is. And so we were both um, got the, the privilege and the honor of, of being um, mentored by, got a relationship with David Tyak and Larry Cuban, who, you know, talk about this like phenomenon, this idea of the grammar of schooling. And so just asking about, you know, where did the grammar of schooling come from? Uh, it, we've gone, we've come a long way just asking a, around questions like that. Thank you for that. Um, and, you know, you, you then both opened the book um, 
with kind of a realization of the moment that we're in, and especially highlighting um, what you term the COVID educational reset. So given, you know, the distance from your time in graduate school to COVID now, um, why do you feel like the book, why publish the book now? Yeah, as Ethan was alluding to a minute ago, we're both really interested in explaining how we got where we presently are. And I often talk about it in terms of identifying the water in which we swim. And I think assessment is particularly interesting because, again, as Ethan was alluding to, everybody dislikes the way that assessment works and everybody recognizes some set of unintended consequences and yet we cling to it as a part of a quote-unquote real school and it struck us as being just remarkable that during the pandemic people were insisting that their children be graded in oregon for instance thousands and thousands of parents signed a petition arguing that the state of Oregon should issue grades to students during the pandemic and making arguments about things like the credential value of education. And if we can step back from that, right, outside of the experience in which, you know, a parent and a child are saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, I'm I'm being wronged here. If we can step outside of that and try to explain what's going on there, I think it's really fascinating, right? In this particular instance, they aren't concerned with the learning that is or isn't taking place. What they're sending a message about is, hey, grades actually function as a kind of token or Disney dollar in this system. And you accumulate enough of those, you're then able to exchange them for something. And that isn't the only way that grades get used, right? Grades also get used as a communication device between educators and families, between educators and students. They also get used as a communication device on a much um, longer distance hall there, right? So they are communicating to college admissions officers or to future employers or to insurance agents, right? In the case of the quote unquote, good student discount, grades are also a motivator for students, right? So they're serving all of these different functions as are standardized test scores, as is the so-called permanent record. And so while some people during the pandemic were raising questions about, you know, is this the end of schooling as we know it? We were struck by how much the opposite seemed to be the case. Like, wow, people are really clinging to this thing that we dislike and that we complain so much about and that we could jettison right now and and look how tenaciously we're hanging on to it. Yeah, I think that's fascinating point and at, at at the crux of that that point one of the points that that is mentioned in the book is you you center um learning as as the crux of public education and just a little background for for listeners who may not know the debates that are going on in the broader education field but you have on the one side people who tend to be in favor of of using schools or using education to promote social justice, which sometimes, you know, may take precedence over learning. And then you have other people that also question what's te- what's termed learnification, right? The, the, this idea of the type of learning that I think we see in ranked, you know, standardized testing and stuff like that, that, that question really, what is learning and, and should it be a goal of public education? So I'm wondering if you two can just reflect on how you came 
to the conclusion that that learning is the the primary objective of of school. <laughs> we're uh, we're both looking at each other, trying to decide uh, what tone to take in responding to this, right? Because I think I think one possible response is come on, if learning isn't the point of education, what is the point of education? Um, but let me answer it a bit less snarkily and say that whatever the broader aim someone has for education, right? Let's say that the aim is to build a more socially just world. The, the tool of schooling Right, has to be used in a particular way if that is the end that we are hoping to realize. So if your goal is to use schooling to produce something different than a socially just world, right, uh, a world in which you are maximizing human capital to produce a robust economy, you still are relying on a particular mechanism, which is, you know, teachers in classrooms with students around curriculum, right? That, that is only going to work in a particular way. Um, and, and it's going to work by teaching students new things, by showing them uh, new perspectives on the world, by helping them discover what they're good at, right? So we we could define learning in a pretty capacious way. We could say, hey, learning includes things like creativity. Learning includes the social and emotional aspect of schooling. We could define it in a really narrow way and say, hey, the only thing that counts as learning is whatever gets measured by a standardized test. But however we define it, and whatever our larger goals are, the purpose of school is learn, right? And if it isn't, then schooling is a really bad way of trying to go about whatever it is we think we're doing other than learning. And for us, you know, I think one of the one of the conversations that we had repeatedly prior to starting this project was about how much assessment really matters, right? How important is this to the actual process of educating young people in schools? Because neither one of us is particularly interested in really small bore, niche, sort of picking at the edges type of work. And it, it just seemed to us that if learning is the purpose of school, and if our assessment technologies are transforming the way that students understand themselves as learners, transforming what families think school is good for, transforming the way that educators engage with and communicate with students, transform the way that educational institutions, let's say like high schools and colleges communicate with each other, then it's absolutely central to whatever it is we think we're trying to do with schooling in this country. If I can just give a really concrete, like even you have a like a conversation going on right now about, you know, students needing to pass civics exams. And it's like, like something as sort of that is as old as as the purpose of schooling gets, like to create Republican machines or to create, the, you know, so some a, a citizen of America, someone who can think, you know, and be and exist in a democratic environment now. I mean, part of the point of the book is like, we have gotten so attached to this particular way of thinking about student achievement that 
that the people who are now like we we care about we we think that people are not being civic how should we ensure that people are civic we'll make sure that there's a civics exam and then i saw today it was like not a high school civics exam it should be an elementary school civics exam and you're like guys if this is as good as we can get when it comes to like measuring as bread and butter a a a, a, a outcome of schooling a citizenship then it's like I don't know. I can't think of a better example of that. Like that just shows it like that's the only way we can think now. And so part of the argument of the book is like to create some space where we might actually think about, you know, what what does it mean to be a citizen if not just, you know, answering uh, a couple multiple choice questions about like the Constitution and the branches of government or something like that? Yeah, excellently put. Um, totally agree. And, and I think to your point, Ethan, is that one of the three pillars that you you rest on is this idea that schools are conservative institutions first and foremost that haven't had much change throughout throughout history and we can see that particularly in this call for the citizenship test you also both mentioned that you you share an appreciation for education's complexity both in its bureaucratic and its political nature and i think most importantly you you name the fact that the tools that we use to assess and rank are not fixed, nor were they given to us by by the gods. Um, and I think if if both of you can just kind of reflect on how it is you came to those to those pillars of that kind of construct your analysis of the book. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start and Jack can jump in. I mean, I think it's yeah. I mean, I think as historians, you know, the the very first thing is to sort of always look askance at things that are you know just received and and just wonder like was it always like this and as soon as you look back at the at the historical record you you realize no grades and transcripts and standardized tests like come in at a very particular time and i think this is like a really key part of it for us is like you know we i think always approach the work as saying you know it's not it's almost never because you know, we're smarter than the people of the past and we've thought of something that they didn't. It's really thinking about, okay, how did these practices evolve? Like, why did we not jettison them? And I mean, for us, it was, it ultimately came down to like, we need to figure out what is it that these tools are doing for our system. And we talk about it in terms of um, motivation, synchronizing our decentralized system, which is a particular, you know, sort of historical anomaly in, in, in the U.S., and um, and then communication and the part of the story of grades and testing and how they've become so central as Jack was talking about. So the point of even at the point of a, you know, century, once in a century pandemic, we can't press pause is because the number of the circles of people that we've communicated have gone from just the student teacher uh, uh, family to some employer that I can't even imagine who they are yet, but like, I'm deathly afraid that whatever appears on my transcript is somehow going to impact this relationship. So understanding like that, the, the, these are solutions that were arrived at to, to solve particular kinds of problems. And that those are just dilemmas in the system of like these, we have multiple purposes, we have multiple audiences and how do you balance how do you get the balance right between these these technologies and 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 these um these goals these these functions that we have to serve and then the last piece is you know thinking about schools are conservative institutions because there's an expectation when parents send their kids to school that they are going to 
especially if a parent was successful at school, encounter something similar. And so parents have conservative expectations about what schools should be. And teachers also have conservative expectations, both because they were once in school and were probably very good at school, but also because what they have learned about how to do their work is rooted in a long experience. And so when when reformers come in and say, well, no, this is all wrong, you should change it. It almost never goes well because the teachers are just not willing to jettison both their personal experience and their professional experience in the hopes that like, you know, the fly by night uh, reformer it ha- has finally gotten it right. Um, and so, you know, these things interact, uh, I think in important ways in explaining kind of our current assessment system. And now Jack will fill in where I got things wrong and jumped over things. Yeah, no, I don't think you got anything wrong there. Uh, But the takeaway that I would add to this is that we are going to offer a really dissatisfying set of conclusions and recommendations for somebody who wants an oversimplified view of the world, right? For somebody who is coming to this book and looking for an easy solution, like let's stop issuing grades or um, let's have all grades be pass fail or let's eliminate all standardized testing, right? From the AP exam to the SAT or the ACT and, and let's do away with the permanent record while we're at it. That is unrealistic because it is not reflective of what people actually want. It's not reflective of um, what the system actually needs in order to function. And it actually disregards a history that tells us that these technologies were developed to solve problems at particular times. And what we're then left with is a dilemma right? We have these assessment technologies that are so problematic and really do, as we say in the subtitle of the book, undermine learning. And at the same time, there is a culture in this country and around the world that clings to assessment, right? Because everybody has gone through school and thinks they understand what a school should look like. Um, There are bureaucratic and political considerations. And then there's the practical consideration of what educators are going to do inside classrooms if you take all of these tools off the table. And so the balance that we then try to strike is to say, let's recognize that We can't just wipe the slate entirely clean. And even if we could, it might actually cause more problems than it solves. So let's then try to de-weaponize grades, test scores, and transcripts. Let's try to amp up the power that they have to actually serve as motivators or communicators. Let's try to mitigate unintended consequences. And I will note that if you go on Amazon right now, you'll see, you know, I think people generally like the book, but wow, there's one really grumpy review where the guy's like, you know, they they didn't give me any any answers here. All they did was tell me the history of this stuff and then talk through the the problems that we face presently and then sort of look around the world at what others are doing uh, and then nothing at the end. So if if what you're looking for is uh, is a panacea or a bottle of snake oil, I've got to say, don't buy this book. And if you do, don't give us an Amazon rating. Yeah, that's so funny because I was also thinking of this gentleman on (laughs) on the internet who was like, you know, 
just yeah i mean basically it, it kind of shows you how you're trained like the the last chapter is supposed to tell you how given all especially as historians you know like given we've given you 150 years of like ah it's complicated not doesn't always work out really well like it kind of you know the, it kind of the system kind of absorbs things that work and kind of keeps expanding but you're supposed to get the really simple like here are the four easy steps you know and uh and we just we just couldn't get there yeah, my favorite is if we just change our perspective, the world will just change as a result of it very quickly. One hundred percent. That happens. Changing perspective. At the end of yeah. <laughs> Changing perspective is undefeated as a right, as a right. totally it's transformative every idea. Every single time, and I think yep. to that point, you you both call for a reorientation, right? And th and this reorientation is from solving problems to managing problems, and I think both on a scholarly idea right this notion that we have problems that we have to solve as scholars but also as people who are in education and who are practitioners the consequence is kind of the same as if you change your your orientation from having to solve to having to manage there's there's a, a lot of different responsibility that's entailed in that switch so i was just wondering if you guys can just go a little bit deeper on how it is you came to that realization that 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 call for reorientation of how we see problems. I'll start and then Jack can can add. I mean, I, I think part of one of the things that I was I'm a pretty pessimistic guy. So so Jack's our solutions man. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, the you know, I, I think like part of it is it seems to me we don't have a language to talk about all the ways that we use and uh, and rely on our assessment technologies. And so I think one of the things that I'm proudest of, of the book providing is what I think of as the baseline, uh, the necessary tools to have kind of a shift in orientation is to allow people to, like we do at, at length in the early parts of trying to show people that part of the tensions are, around our our are or part of the tensions that we're dealing with, part of the failure to reform grades is is a inaccurate or, or, or not totally um, developed sense of what they're actually doing. So, you know, to take a really um, like popular example now of saying like, well, we don't like, we should get rid of the SAT. And when you hear people talk about getting rid of the SAT, often what you hear people talking about is they don't like the level of inequality we have in our system. They don't like how advantage comes into the system at important places. And they don't like how high stakes the, the like ranking is. Well, if you think about all those things, and then you think about removing the SAT, you realize pretty quickly that removing that does not solve a lot of the problems. Like you still have this issue of high stakes, you still have this issue of inequality. And as we argue in the book, often when you tinker with the system, all you're doing is putting pressure on other parts. So it's like, you know, the the transcript, the grades and the and the um and the standard tests are kind of a triad. And if you remove one, it just the other two absorb the pressure. And so it seems like, you know, when you, I think when you come at it from the way that we do in the book, you see pretty quickly how a lot of these sort of simplistic solutions where you pull something out and then you hope the rest goes, goes well, um, just, it just won't work. It like, it can't work. And so I think providing a language where we can talk about these different communication functions, these different synchronization functions. I think a lot of people, if you said, well, we could get rid of standardized tests if you're willing to standardize everything else in the curriculum, like they would not take that trade. And so then you end up closer to where we are, which is like, okay, it's about balancing which things we need to synchronize and when and why. And so I think that was at least for me, like a very big part of the book was to provide people tools 
to arrive at and generate answers that might actually have a chance of like surviving even the little bit of pressure that the system is going to bring to any any kind of solution. Yeah, Ethan mentioned David Tyack and Larry Cuban earlier. Um, the language of problems and dilemmas comes directly from Larry Cuban, uh, who is a historian of education as well as a, a policy thinker. And, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of lots of other scholars there, including uh, Tyack and Cuban, who have observed that reform fails in education. And historians have made a particular kind of contribution there to try to explain why it is that reform fails, right? Reform fails because it disregards the deep roots of these components of the educational system that we don't particularly like, but which are actually really deeply embedded across multiple arenas. And assessment is a perfect example of that, right? We dislike assessment and yet Pulling it up is tougher than pulling up, you know, it, in New England, it's uh, it's not weed that just gets everywhere and you can never fully eliminate. And so our solution is not a solution. And, and again, that's going to be fairly dissatisfying to people. But look at the history of solutions as we do in one of the chapters, right? We go through, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen different um, alternatives to the way that we presently assess student learning in schools. And every single one of them fails to transform the system. And that's not because they're bad ideas. It's just because you need more than a clever idea to change a culture, to change a bureaucratic system, to change a set of political demands, to change the practical reality on the ground inside schools. And so, you know, where we end up is let's let's try to take little bits of all these ideas. Let's try to listen to the things that educators are saying that they're doing inside their classrooms. Let's bear in mind these three purposes that assessment has served right? Communication, motivation, and what we call articulation. It's like trying to stitch the various components of the system together. I think, too, one of the surprising things that comes out of the book itself, at least for me, was was the global approach that you both took. So after you describe the history and you also kind of lay out the, the analytical framework by which you advance the book and your, your call for reorientation, one of the parts expands on the fact that this is a this is a global phenomenon, um, and I was wondering if you both could speak a little bit more about that. I'm happy to to jump in first. Uh, you know, I, the, these books are supposed to go a certain way, right? It's supposed to start with the past and then work through the present, and then offer a picture of a much brighter future. And that was our original plan. And anybody who picks up the book will see that things did not go according to plan. We start with the present, we move to the past. And then in terms of, you know, looking around for a brighter future, our first move was to look abroad. And we really thought, you know, we're going to find some country that's just doing it right. And all we have to do is kind of copy paste. And we looked around and 
this is a global problem. Everybody's in the same situation. And we even did a survey of educators from, I can't remember the exact number, close to 50 different countries, um, you know, South America, East Asia, um, Africa. We covered the continents there. I don't think we got anybody from Antarctica. Um, we we certainly had North America well covered already. Um, you know, I think we were a little light on Europe just because it, it's so well covered in the scholarly literature. And we just heard the same things over and over. Um Educators being frustrated with the role of grades, being frustrated with the outside influence of standardized test scores, um, being frustrated with the way that student motivation gets contorted and the way that um, an extrinsic motivation really replaces an intrinsic motivation at an early age. And we then pivoted from thinking, you know, maybe there are some ideas that we can borrow from around the world to wondering like, what is going on here and trying to explain it. And one of the fascinating pieces was the legacy of colonialism. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the goals that any author of a book like this has is to get adopted in uh, higher education courses, right. For undergrads or grad students. And I, was kind of surprised, but we work on this chapter thinking like this could be if people just photocopy one chapter and use it in their classes, it might be the chapter on what's going on around the world, because there's this amazing history of colonialism that you see play out where, whoa, just like look, look across the continent of Africa and see the influence of the British and French educational systems where, you know, students today, you know, decades, half a century in most cases after, you know, the official British and French colonial empires pulled out of Africa, you still see things like, you know, British A-level exams or, uh, you know, the, the French curriculum and the assessments associated with it being used. Why? Not only because it's a cultural inheritance, right? That, again, schooling is this conservative institution because when people move through it, they become acculturated to it and believe that that is the system that is um, legitimate and real and expect the same for their own children, but also because in many of these places, they're trying to maintain access. Folks in these countries are trying to maintain access to higher education, to jobs, right, to opportunities. And here we then get this story of globalization as well, where, you know, as we become a more globalized world, you can see pressure on educational systems to provide students with the kinds of credentials that are going to open up social and economic opportunities for them. Yeah, I think that that hits the nail on the head as far as the need to to for the reorientation, not only the fact that it's a, a problem here, but it's a it's an international problem that um, you couldn't give an easy, easy, easy solution for every single country that is going through this. So it requires it requires human deliberation. But given that we're, we're running out of time a little bit on this student account for Zoom, um, I was wondering if either of you um or if both of you have a future project um, that you guys are thinking about working on or 
coming together. Jack always has Even a project. You, I want I want to hear about Jack's projects. <laughs> You're just just gonna wait me out on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm working on a book. I I write books quickly, uh, and I'm trying to not do that uh, for this next book project. So I'm slow rolling a book about teacher time use. Um, what is uh, the central problem in improving schools? If it is an assessment, uh, which which I think maybe it is, then I think uh, the things we do to teachers and their time um, could could make for uh, you know that that first place slot for problematic things that we don't really sufficiently think through in education and. Uh, which, though there may not be a, a panacea for them, uh, which we can certainly do better at. So thinking about, you know, what does a teacher's day look like? What does a teacher's week look like? What does a teacher's year look like? And where are the opportunities to free up more time for things like direct work with students, for professional development, for becoming more involved in the kinds of policies that shape schools, districts, states, um, so, so that's a project that I'm working on right now. And then um, always involved in uh, stuff related to assessment. So we've got a couple big projects in Massachusetts that consume a lot of my time in a good way. It's a good piece of advice to have like multiple projects. If you can manage it, I think it's a good, it's like reducing the risk associated with any project taking more or less time. Um, I'm working on a project currently uh, looking at so this is a contemporary project looking at how schools responded to COVID and used their like federal money. And as a good historian, thinking about this problem as a contemporary problem made me think about the past. And so I'm I'm kind of playing with I'm maybe soft pitching it to Jack right now that what we need is a is a is a this boom bust cycle that people always say is a one off, you know, it was like the 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 economy imploded in 2007. We got race to the top. COVID strikes, we get this big influx of money and that these things that we always associate with being like one off, you know, um, uh, infusions of money, actually like that is the history of, of like school investment, at least for much of the 20th century is that it's not this sort of steady, like increase it's that the, we end up with these like massive injections. And then we wonder why schools couldn't be transformative in these moments when we never think about infrastructure or capacity. So trying to think a little bit more systematically about kind of this history of the, you know, just like the federal response, you know, always being directed towards schools and then always these big efforts. And then afterwards they go like, well, what did we get for all that? I mean, you just see how quickly the narrative goes from like, well, we gave schools all this money to respond because we recognized how hard it was going to be. And then it's like, yeah, but the test scores are still down. And it's like two years later, you know, like, well, you know, just like this sort of this like implicit counterfactual or this like sort of implicit uh, the way that we sort of forget how schools are the front line of the crisis. And then we wonder why it, it didn't, it didn't go transformatively. So thinking a little bit more about this history um, and that's like my one piece of like mini career advice for advice for the historians out there aspiring. I don't think Jack, have we, have you ever had been hired for a history of ed job? I've always no, had jobs no. that were, that were actually in a different vein. And then 
parlayed my ability to talk about, you know, policy or normative questions and those kinds of things into being able to do history. And I think they've always worked really well together. And so I, I think there's like, that's a pathway for a lot of people who are, who are coming up in the profession. There aren't that many history of ed jobs, but historians were often very, very good at doing these other things be, in part because we were trained as historians or we, we think historically about them. So that's my career advice plug. And, and I would say as an historian, but also as a teacher, um, thank you both for for writing this book and and entrusting in the the professional judgment of of both the practitioners and the scholars that that are going to be reading this and hopefully the Amazon viewer the reviewer also listens to this to to hear uh, what the purpose of the book <laughs> to was. recant his views yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, right we had to, to settle the score but uh, thank you both Jack and Ethan so much for your time um, I wish you both well this semester. No, th thanks and for thanks for, us. yeah, thanks for reading the book so closely and engaging with it. We of appreciate course, it. Of course. Have a great one.